There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying, and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me, or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Valentin Scholz, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for hosting. Without further ado, let's just go straight into it. Please tell us who you are, what you do, and most importantly, why do you do it? Right. Um, I basically, um, I founded a company called Kiko. Um, so essentially what we're trying to do is to allow landlords to rent out the flat deposit-free directly to the tenants uh, while offering a better um protection against damages and also getting a rent insurance guarantee. And before Kiko, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Because you've done a bunch of work. You've done, you've been a software engineer, you've been the head of design, you've been chief product officer, and then you've led growth in two different companies. Yeah. So I'm in my, like recently I worked for a company called Revolut, um, which is one of the fastest growing companies in the world. Um, I joined when there were roughly 100 employees. I left when there were roughly 2,000. Um, and uh, basically my job was to help the company grow faster by acquiring more customers and making sure that the acquired customers understand the value and benefit of Revolut and ideally use it on a daily basis. Let's zoom out on the Revolut conversation for one second. Um, London is the capital of fintech in the world, arguably. Very, very competitive marketplace with a lot of strong legacy players, VCs, investment funds, um, banks, obviously. And then come this whole fintech revival, this challenger banks revival. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that landscape in which you're operating in? 
Yeah, I think it, I mean, the whole thing happened after the financial crisis. Um, I think the UK and also the European Union were probably the first regulator that basically invented a new framework which allowed smaller companies to compete with established players. So if you think about like uh, big banks of billions of, of cash, and it's very hard for like a small startup, which has maybe a f half a million or a few millions to compete against that. Uh, because it's just like to get a banking license and to get the, 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 the cash that you need to hold uh, balances um, outweighs kind of like uh, what you can achieve with a small company. So after the financial crisis, basically, like the regulators thought about how can we make finance more transparent and have more competition. And they created something called the e-money license, which is used by a lot of different companies, not just challenger banks, but also investment platforms or insurance companies. And uh, I think that regulation uh, or the regulatory framework, which uh, allowed companies like Revolut, Monzo, Moniz, and many others to actually start building their products, start offering their product to customers, and then ultimately grow into a sustainable uh, scale-up or even uh, enterprise. And you've had startup experience coming into Revolut as the 100th employee. Yeah, I mean, uh, my whole journey was a bit random. So... Um, I used to play semi-professional football when I, in my youth. And when I was roughly 14, you kind of have to make a decision if you want to try to become a professional or if you basically, um, you know, finish school, go studying, these sort of things. Um, so ultimately, I decided that uh, it's a bit too risky to become a professional football player. Also because at that time, um, footballers didn't earn that much. And, uh, you know, it was usually common that you maybe play 10 years, eight years professionally. And then you kind of like, you don't have much education, you don't have much experience. And a lot of them basically struggled to find good jobs. So basically when I, 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 I chose to not become a professional football player, um, I suddenly had a lot of free time and I somehow ended up playing Counter-Strike um, with friends. And uh, usually uh, you play five on five. So you have your team and you want to showcase your team and your results. Um, so I went to my mom and I was like, hey, uh, we want to have a website. Can you give me some money? And my mom was basically saying no. <laughs> um, she was basically like, I'm not giving you money, but here's a book. Do it yourself. And uh, I think for me, it was always, if people told me I can't do something, like I always wanted to prove them wrong. I don't know why. I just want to. And so I basically spent day and night um, to build my first website. And then I actually enjoyed doing that process because it felt very similar uh, to playing Lego or doing something technical. And essentially, I ended up uh, studying design so that the website looks nicer. And then other teams basically approached me and were like, hey, can you build a website for us too? We even pay you. And so that's how I basically ended up uh, starting with the whole, uh, in the whole startup scene. In a 2016 article, um, you've been quoted, I started a couple of startups in the past and I've probably did every mistake possible. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, like, I think in general, like how to build a company or even like how to, to do product or growth, there's, it's very hard to learn because you can't really go to uni. Um, you basically need mentors, you need people that, that, that help you to understand, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and it, it involves a lot of mistakes on the road. Because uh, essentially, you try to create something that didn't exist before. So if you look at a company like Revolut, um, 
like how they started was basically about offering free uh, currency exchange. And it was, uh, that just didn't exist before. I mean, if you wanted to send money from, let's say, the United Kingdom to the United States, you always had to pay a markup on the exchange rate. You always had to pay fees for the transfer. Um, and you basically even lost usually around 5 to 10% just on that transfer. And it's the same like if you traveled abroad, you always lost with every single payment, with every time you went to the ATM, you lost a lot of money. I think that's why it's so hard because you're trying to achieve something that nobody ever achieved before. So there's not really like guidelines or anything like how you can do this, right? So the, the most important thing is like your approach and your process and how you actually solve a problem and how you, you can uh, get closer to that goal. And I think uh, the only way nowadays to learn this is by actually working in companies that achieved it and learning from the inside how to do these things. Because it's very hard from the outset to know which part actually made a difference and which part didn't. So if you if you had to close or, or discontinue certain startups that you've started, how did you know it was time to shut them down and move on? I think most people f start the wrong way of startup. Like you should start a startup because you want to solve a problem. Um, sometimes you see an opportunity, but it's usually a problem that exists in real life. I think the, the, the biggest learning for me was basically to think first about what is the problem you're solving and is the problem painful enough for a lot of people that they were willing to switch what they're doing right now to your solution. And I think most startups never succeed because they, they don't actually solve something that people really care about. Um, they, they create something that sounds cool. And going back to the Revolut days, so you were the 100th employee of a company that was in a busy marketplace, but were there ever any signs for how successful the company is going to become? Uh, yeah. I, personally, I've never met a founder like Nick. I mean, he was extremely dedicated to work, extremely focused, um, extremely hardworking, and... He created like a culture around him to have people with a similar ambition and that basically just want to succeed at all costs and people that just want to prove the world what they're capable of. And also believing in the product, believing what the company wants to achieve and why they want to achieve it. So when you look at all the things that Revolut had to offer you back then, so you could, you could when you were signing the content, you're signing, okay, a team I believe in or founders I believe in, check. Um, a product I believe in, checked the timing i think the timing is very hard to know right um so for example the first electric car was like it's 100 years old probably the timing wasn't right um it's, it's very difficult to know when the right time is and often you just know it afterwards that's why not every i mean um like you could see some signs that it's probably the right timing because the regulatory change and in general like how You know, that it, it's a market that's quite outdated. It wasn't disrupted for a long time and it's, it's still very painful to use. But it could be that, you know, the timing is right now. So it wasn't like five years ago. It could be the timing is in five years. Yeah. It's very hard to know these things. I want to know the difference between being the 100th employee of a startup. Okay, there's some promise. There's some money in the bank. They obviously know at least a little bit of what they're doing. And then the company, when it reaches 2,000 people, So what was Revolut like when you were 100 employees and you knew the names of everyone in the office? Well, it was a very, um, it was very startup mode, um, very fast moving. Uh, every individual had a lot of responsibility. Um, you had to be a very good all-rounder because essentially you needed to 
there, there was no space for like experts in fields. Like you, you just had to do what needs to be done. And it doesn't matter if you can do it or not. I mean, you basically just had to learn it if you can't. And I think like the bigger you get, the more um, discipline in terms of organizational design you need. Um, and people can't do whatever they want anymore. They actually have to specialize on, on a particular field in order that the company still moves uh, fast. Was it a tolerant environment for trial and error? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's like, um, in a way, basically, like Nick, uh, so the, the CEO, basically, he gave everyone targets. Like, there were certain metrics that we needed to hit in terms of, like, how many users we need to acquire on a daily basis, um, how much revenue we need to make, uh, what kind of, you know, activation rates we need to hit, and so on. That's not different from any other company no, that's commercially just, savvy? No, I think it's, I mean... In general, like you shouldn't do work just for the sake of doing work. You should have a goal in mind and then work uh, getting closer to that goal. Um, so Nick just set very aggressive goals, um, which was usually like 10 times the baseline, um, which requires you to think differently because you can't get to the goal with small incremental changes, or at least not in the given time frame. So you had to think outside of the box and basically had to think, okay, how can I make big step changes? How many, how many other challenger banks were in the same, you know, competing over the same demographic, over the same clicks? Um, I don't know, like, uh, I mean, there was five, six, seven. Five, six, seven. But to be honest, like, you never lose, I mean, you, you never lose or get bankrupt or be not successful because of your competition. It's always your own choice. I mean, if you basically start factoring in, like, competition, I mean, basically you give away control. So for us, it was always about like, what do we need to do in order to be the number one? What do we need to do in order to be the more most successful company? We didn't really, really look too much at competitors. I think like competitors, like you should be aware of what they're doing and you should be mindful about what they're doing. But in the end of the day, it's about how you execute your own job. That is a very rare level of confidence for any company. But it's like, I mean, if you look at professional football players like Messi or Ronaldo, I mean, they don't look at like what the other person is doing. They look at what they're good at and how they can become better, how they can train more, how to be faster, how to have better shots, like how the tactics of the team can be better. Because that's the only thing you can actually influence. You can't influence how the other team plays. It's the same in a company. You can't influence like how, how another company builds the product, how they, you know, grow, what the strategy is, how much they raise. It's, it's, it's just not possible. So the only thing that you can actually influence is your own work. First got a job, 100th employee, 700,000 people. Uh, is, is, this is the user base. How long did you stay with the company? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Fast forward, two and a half years, 10 million customers, 2,000 employees. What does it feel like to work for a company that's going through hyper growth? That's <laughs> It's, uh, it's quite challenging and demanding. Um, it's basically like there's so much things to do and you have to move so quick. Uh, you don't have much room for error. And uh, in, in general, like it, it was quite challenging, but it was also like you learned a lot during the time. And it was also quite rewarding to see how, how many people you can you know, make happy and, and, and provide value to. You said that it was challenging. Yeah. Most people I know who work in the startup scene, when I ask them about their job, they would say it was challenging. But very few people have experienced hyper growth. Um, people have seen the company double in numbers, triple in numbers, but we're not talking double or triple. So 
what's the difference in your opinion between a hyper growth environment that is growth at all costs versus we're demonstrating steady growth, which is what startups sometimes do. I mean, the thing is like, uh, like, so certain things like we couldn't influence, right? So like, even if we stopped doing things, which still grew like super fast. So essentially, like if you, if you, if you have basically like the bigger you get, and if, if there's a lot of word of mouth happening, I mean, at some point you can't really stop. The only thing what you can do is basically block people from signing up. So in a way, like every department, every individual in the company constantly had to adapt to the new challenges. And let's say um, in the beginning you have, uh, you know, like um, there's, there's two metrics, for example. On one hand, you acquire more customers and you have your total user base. On the other hand, you have how many people are active on a daily basis. So now if you increase the ratio of, of total registered users to daily active users and grow faster, you basically have like nearly exponential growth. So it means that for every team, every day, everything becomes exponentially harder to do. And so that's why it becomes challenging. And that's why basically you need to focus more on on solving big problems first, because you basically, um, you can't, you don't have time to waste on on smaller problems because otherwise the whole thing would just fall on. So you're constantly looking for the levers that will influence as many customers as possible. Yeah, you constantly look at what are the biggest opportunities and what are the biggest problems. And you basically just focus on these things and you make sure that you, you need to stay focused and you need to do these things. Otherwise, um, you know, it will not end very well. You said that there, was, there wasn't a lot of room for error. And in many working cultures that I've worked in, the CEO or whoever it is would say something like, guys... <laughs> You know, let's keep perspective. We're not brain servants. No one's going to die. But it sounds like you're describing a culture in which this is considered very high stakes. Okay, I mean, let's put it this way. Like, we could make mistakes, and we did a lot of mistakes. Um, I mean, you, you don't... It's impossible to innovate and to build something that didn't exist before if you don't make mistakes. Because essentially, like, everything you ship, everything you do... Uh, the, the main thing is always to constantly learn to better understand you know what actually works what doesn't work what do people care about what do they not care about so obviously you make constantly mistakes and that's a good thing and that's also like embraced by the company by the CEO and so on the thing is like if you have uh, a million people or now there's even more that um, use your product on a daily basis uh, where they have all the money or like a fraction of their money on their accounts you can't really afford that your service is not accessible for a whole day because essentially you lock out a million people from their money. So that's what I mean. Like, like there wasn't much room for error because it, we had the money of, of, of each individual customer at stake. And worst case, they can't pay the rent. Worst case, they can't eat food. You know, They can't pay a hotel bill or can't get an Uber. So it's not like, uh, oh, you lock out of your Facebook account. I mean, it's actually your bank account. It needs to work. Wow, people forget, I forget that it's actual people's lives. It's not just a luxury product. It's not a lifestyle product. It's actual people's money and their ability to flow through life and they're trusting you to enable that. And that's something that in a way justifies aggressive culture in the sense that we cannot afford to fuck that up because that person's evening, month, whoever knows is going to be ruined. And... And I think that is a 
part of innovation that we, we sometimes forget. There are so many silly startups. A dog walking app that raises $300 million, I mean, okay, you're making some people's lives much more comfortable, but it's not a life or death. It's not, it's, it's not more than an inconvenience if you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's money. And money would get people to be... Yeah, but to be fair, like, I mean, I don't even think we're like... I mean, obviously, if, uh, financial companies are heavily regulated and there's a lot of controls in place and with a lot of responsibility. On the other hand, I mean, if you work in, let's say, medicine or if you work in space flights or, like, um, if you manufacture, like, uh, airplanes, you have even more responsibility because you have less uh, room for errors. But if you're manufacturing airplanes, then the regulatory world that is imposed on you it won't let an airplane go up in the sky without you. Well, um, I mean, if, 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 I mean, what happened to the one airplane, um, I think from... The Boeing ones? Yeah, that uh, basically had a software issue. It's, the issue is like it's... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot of these things are very hard to test. And obviously, there's a lot of controls in place to make sure uh, or to mitigate that risk as much as possible. But, like, you never can rule out that there's a risk, right? Um, and... Um, so the, the the whole the whole idea from startups is always like how can you move as fast as possible uh, to make the biggest impact possible with the least damage you can do, and certain industries are more sensible, other industries are less sensible. But like I think like some of the misunderstanding of the startup scene is that you know like uh, companies uh, don't care about revenue, companies don't care about unique economics, uh, and you can just raise crazy amounts of money and making loss constantly. Which is not true. I mean, if you look at Facebook, for example, Facebook made a profit from year one. They made uh, in the first year already four hundred thousand. I think in the second year six to nine million, and then I think in the fourth year already one hundred seventy million. That wasn't a company that basically didn't make revenue. That's like they made mad profit from day one, and that's why they were so valuable. I think because the media usually wants to pick up the stories in that sense and create some sort of hype. A lot of the less experienced people then think you know that works that way. And then because, you know, 
there might be less experienced investors or less investors, uh, experienced entrepreneurs. You know, they start creating businesses that just don't have a proper business model. They don't have proper controls in place. They don't take things too seriously. And then usually that creates the issues. Unless you worked for companies like Facebook, Uber, Apple, and so on. Like, how do you really know how things are working internally? How do you know, like, how processes are structured, how you actually have to do work, what targets are important? I mean, it's a lot of, you know, rumors and a lot of gossip. But in the end of the day, it's it's usually never really publicly documented. Uh, and because a company doesn't want to reveal the secrets to success and doesn't want to, you know, tip off competitors and these sort of things. Yeah. So in the end of the day, um, it's very hard to know for someone that never been in that environment how to do it the proper way. And for that reason, a lot of people try to copy it from the outside. And then obviously, you do certain mistakes because you work with information asymmetry. But it's, I mean, it's the same, like, let's say, if you play poker and don't know the other person's card. I mean, how do you know what they have, right? So you try to make best educated guesses. And, you know, some people are better at this and some people are worse. So let's, let's finish that uh, question about yeah. working for a 2,000 people company. So the Revolut you left to start Kiko, what was it like coming into the office? Uh, who are the people you worked with? Your access to the senior decision makers, um, your job? It's a very broad question, but try and describe what it felt like working for a hyper-growing 2,000 people company. To be honest, it didn't really change too much for me over the two and a half years. I worked mostly with the CEO, um, who was my line manager for the majority of the time. And then I worked with uh, engineering and product teams. So I think initially it was a lot, like you had very small teams, very lean teams, um, where you had to do a lot of the work and you had to do things very fast. I think roughly after a year, year and a half, we needed to basically scale up the, the, the manpower in order to sustain the growth. So it was a lot more about hiring and finding the right people and then teaching people and, you know, making sure that also your team skills, not just the use of it. I want to double click on the hiring part because if this podcast is about startup nightmares, a lot of nightmares uh, seeds are planted when you're only being fed of one part of the story. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the misconceptions people had coming into Revolut? I mean, I think like it's, it's similar to your product and how you do things internally. Like you get a better understanding over time how to hire the right people, you know, which are the people that actually, you know, like what is actually your company culture and how do you test people properly that these people then align with your culture? How do you make sure that you properly onboard them and, and teach them how to do things the, the revolute way in that sense? And uh, I mean, basically the way it works is like... Uh, you, you kind of do mistakes and then you try to, you know, fix them and then make them better. So in the end, uh, when I left, there was very rigid processes around how we hire people, how we interview people, how we rate them, uh, about performance reviews. And so I think it, it made it, it made it easier or it made it, it decreased the risk of basically hiring people that don't suit the, the style of Revolut. Um, which in the end of the day, you, you want to avoid, right? Because it's not good for the company because you basically don't have that employee that you really need. Um, on the other hand, it's really bad for an employee because they're not very happy there and they don't enjoy it there. And then uh, ultimately either they leave or, you know, get moved on. Yeah. And when you say the culture overload, some people are familiar and some people are not. Um, can you describe briefly the ups and downs of working for a hyper-growing company with a compelling vision and an aggressive mindset? 
I mean, I, I don't think there's like a, a one size fits all, right? I mean, culture often comes from the founders. Um, and then every individual is slightly different. So um, to give a, an example, which is not directly really, um, related to the startup scene, but like if you look at the professional sports teams, um, let's say football, there's some teams that play with a lot of technique, they play beautiful football, um, they play a lot of ball possession. And there's other teams that are more like about running and, and you know, fighting spirit and, and being aggressive. So there's no one way that is more successful or there's no one way that is better. It's just a different style. And you need to make sure that you get the right players for the right style. And um, it's similar to companies, right? Like some companies are more like there's certain companies that love remote work. And there's, you know, people like to be at home. They like to you know, be able to work from anywhere. They like to work from whatever times there's, you know, they want to work. And there's other companies where it's more like an office culture where people should be in an office. So I personally just feel like, uh, like it's on one hand, it's a responsibility of a company to test people to, to make sure that you hire for the right, uh, you know, the right culture. On the other hand, it's the responsibility also of an employee to do a proper research and understand how the company really is, how it's working there, and if that's something I want uh, to spend my time with. But in general, I would say like you should care about the product. Like I wouldn't, I would never work for a startup where I don't use the product. I just, I don't get the point. Like especially if you work in, uh, if you're a product uh, owner. You essentially can't improve a product if you don't actually use it yourself, if you don't understand the customer. Um, and then the next thing is uh, basically like uh, looking at the founders, are they ambitious? Because in the end of the day, a founder needs to spend more time than anybody else. They drive the company forward. And if the, the founders are not very focused, if they're not very committed to what the company should do, how would you? Uh, and then the third thing is you should know what you want to do in terms of like what kind of job you want to do. I think if, if, you, if you don't know what you want to do, right, it's very hard to, to, to make sure that you, can, that you can succeed. What advice would you give folks in, in order to have them adapt into, into the new uh, roles within the same company? Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's simple, right? <laughs> Ask your line manager what are the expectations on you and then just do that. You think that's simple, but uh, how many of us miss that? Uh, bit most people just don't ask a question. I mean, like if you join a new company, like there was a reason why somebody hired you. So the first thing I would do is like ask what is, you know, what would make my first 30 days or first six months successful in the company. And then uh, basically would focus on these things. What can you tell me about learning how to think? What does that even mean? Uh, I, I value if people put in effort. I think there's actually a book about... Um, like if you compare the most successful people, it's usually people that put in a lot of effort. Like, and it's not, it doesn't mean like you have to sit in an office for 60 hours or 80 hours, but like actually like that you spend a substantial amount of time on what you like doing. And the best people are the people that actually like what they're doing. Nobody forces them to do these things. They want to come in early. They want to leave late because they want to be the best in their field right you want to be the best football player you want to be the best marketing person you want to be the best product manager and the thing is like the only thing that you can actually control is your effort like it's very hard to control other things but if you have that mentality to basically work harder than the rest and to basically catch up with other people to learn more to learn faster 
it's very hard to, to basically compete with you and you usually will be very successful. And it's, I think nowadays in the media, like it's portrayed in a way that, you know, you have all these super young people that have like these crazy positions or leading massive companies and they never worked hard, which is completely nonsense. I mean, if you, if you, if you hear the, the interviews of uh, Bill Gates that he had, or Steve Jobs that they had multiple times all nighters that he didn't sleep for three days in a row. Uh, Elon Musk constantly sleeps in their own office. I mean, it's it's basically just work ethic, right? That you kind of like you're so committed to your cause, you believe so much in it that you don't mind doing these things. I mean, there's a negative example which is investment banking, where you basically force people to be in the office. So I think if you have that, you know, if you have the work ethic um, because you want to, you naturally will always learn faster. And then the second thing is like you need. I feel like there's a like nowadays people, you know, like they have such a short attention span. Um, so basically like you constantly, you don't focus on one problem long enough and you never get deep enough to really understand it. And like, for example, um, in order to, to, to get that growth at Revolut, I spent over nine months on, on referrals. I mean, the majority of all growth comes from one acquisition channel. And it was just because we did it over and over and over and over again. And we spend all our time, all our thinking just in how can we make this better? How can it, you know, what's not optimal? Like what can be tweaked? What can be improved? Working on the same problem for nine months is a privilege that in many startups you don't have. Well, you have it, just most people don't focus. So, so that's my question. Is the conviction to focus on a channel, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a case study that you've seen and you're trying to replicate or an understanding that this is how your product is going to grow? Or just because you don't have any other options, because you don't have, have any money? I mean, in general, like every, every company is different and everybody has like their own strengths. In general, there's only three acquisition channels that are basically non, basically that never run out. So usually uh, if you want to do growth, which is not marketing and so on, but growth basically means you build an automated systems that basically like brings you new customers without, you know, spending time uh, where you don't have a time constraint. So for example, if you're a salesperson, you actually have to call people. Let's say you're sick, nobody calls that person, so you don't close a deal. Like a growth system is automatically, like it works at night, it works on sick days, it just, you know. So the, the, there's only three, like if you think logically, there's only three acquisition channels worldwide that you never really explode. So one of them is um, you basically have the network of your users. So every new user will bring at least one more user. So, I mean, it's very rare that you don't have any friends or any family. So potentially you're, with every new user, your network of potential users is getting bigger. The second thing is like ad networks. I mean, platforms like Facebook, Google are so big nowadays that you nearly can reach anyone in the world. And the third one is uh, basically search. So if you use platforms like Google, Amazon, there's so many people looking for products and searching for products that it's nearly impossible to get all the traffic from these uh, players. And these are the only three channels that will constantly drive more users. Everything else means that you basically need, to, it, it doesn't scale like, you know, you don't have economies of scale. Essentially, like if you want to acquire more people, you need to hire more people. So if you look at fa um, companies like uh, Salesforce, uh, the only way for them to grow is to hire more salespeople. Because, uh, I mean, that's what they do, right? They send someone to the office, they convince them, but like the whole approach doesn't work anymore like if there's no salespeople. And so like the hard thing there is like you can't really reduce the cost of a new acquisition because 
I mean, the only way to do this is either your existing salespeople need to close more deals yeah. or they need to uh, work longer or they basically they get a lower salary. Yeah, that's a, that's a Salesforce is such a good example because with Salesforce, like they will sell you Salesforce. It's just a matter. Is it going to take them three months, six months, a year, but you are going to buy Salesforce eventually. Yeah. And they are relentless in that regard. And that's quite amazing. But that's the thing is like, I mean, every company needs to know where their strengths and what their approach are. If you're a person that is good in sales, right, you should probably spend most of your time on sales. So the thing is, it's a myth, but like if you look at any company, they usually have one or two main acquisition channels. That's it. So if Salesforce, for example, will never grow much through referrals. Revolut probably will never grow much through sales. But it's more like you need to know where you're strong at, and then you just focus on that channel over and over and over again. And uh, if you look at companies like Revolut, Facebook, Airbnb, I mean, there doesn't seem to be really like a ceiling. So why not just focus on one thing and do it really well? I think it's also, I think what Google says, like do one thing, but do it really, really well. In an environment with conflicting priorities, like startups, what feature do I develop? What uh, what next position do I hire? It's easier said than done. If you think about this, it's, it's, it's about prioritization. So you have, a, the problem is basically you have limited, um, um, you have a time constraint, right? So like as a human uh, person, you only have, um let's say you sleep six hours you have 18 hours and that's the maximum time you can give then you probably commute so you have 17 hours and let's say you also want to have some freedom so maybe you have 10 to 12 hours in some cases maybe you put 15. so that's the only time you have so what you now need to think about is like how to use your time the most efficiently so like what are the projects that make the biggest impact and uh, that usually goes like in terms of like looking at the competitive landscape, looking at competitors, looking at, you know, the, the probability of success of certain things. And then just uh, essentially spend a bit more time initially thinking through what is the right and the wrong thing and then just doing these things. Because if you try to do one thing one day and the next thing next day, you never get that expertise and that understanding. Um, I actually wanted to touch base on this. Like, so there's this saying from Steve Jobs, and I think it's it's super powerful, where he basically says, like, uh, once you realize that the world is built by no people smarter than by you, that's actually when you can start changing things. And like, if you think about it, like roads and houses and washing machines, like, like all of these things are not built by amazingly smart people. It's just like people focused on small things and then the... the the amount of all these different innovations and over time then generates what we live in. But like you can't, like it's not, nobody would be able to build just this world tomorrow. I want to ask you a little bit about choosing your pains because working for a company like Revolut with an aggressive growth culture, um, with so many moving parts, and then choosing a different problem completely, which is being a business owner, with everything that comes with it, fundraising and, and, and hiring and multiple conflicting priorities and hustling. Like, do you take a paycheck out of the company? Yeah, but not very high. And, and how are you paying the employees? Did you already have the investment in? Yeah, we raised. Okay, so how long will that, will that uh, investment last? Um, around 18 months. Okay, 18 months in startup plan, that actually means a year. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to raise again in a year. <laughs> And so, so, but the the idea is actually we we we're aiming to to get it profitable from the beginning. You take a skill set that you've owned uh, working for a unicorn and you apply it 
on a company that's, you know, how many, like four, five people now? I would five. Five people. You'll be, you'll be what, 15, 20 by the end of the year? Yeah, that's kind of like the target. So you're a percentage of what you are when you're working for Revolut. You don't have the resources and the execution pull west. Yeah, but you're, you're lean. It's also nice, right? It's like you don't need all this overhead because you're a small team. You're five people. It's easy to communicate. Everybody knows what each other is doing. Uh, I mean, it's it has benefits and it has disadvantages. But like, I personally enjoy building product again. I like what I'm doing. I feel like a lot of people don't really want to follow their dreams because they're afraid of failing. And I think, you know, people fail all the time. There's nothing bad about failing. It's something that you get taught at school, that it's not good to be, you know, to make mistakes. It's not good to, to do things wrong. But the thing is, like, it's, it's not about, like, it's not about if you do mistakes because everybody does mistakes. Um, it's just a matter of, like, what you learn from mistakes and how do you avoid making them mistake again in the future. And so I think uh, people should have a bit more confidence. I think people should take a bit more risk. Um, the way I always saw it is like, what's the worst thing that happens? And worst thing that happens is like, in my case, like I go back to my mom and, you know, spend a bit more time with her. I mean, do you really need to spend, let's say, $2,000 or $1,000 in an apartment? You could go somewhere where it's cheaper. Right? So there's always ways how you can, you know, make sure that like you don't run like you don't have to go bankrupt and, and always go all in, but you can take risks in your life. And then let's say if you're amazing at drawing, if you want to be an artist or graphic designer, why not go all in, you know, like why not risk something? Worst case in six months or a year, you realize, okay, it's not for me and you do something else. People, I think I personally like, I admire people that, you know, that follow their passion and follow their dream because a lot of people don't do this anymore. And from a hiring perspective, you rather hire people that failed a few times, but they actually, you know, they really want to do, try new things and, and want to succeed. Then if you hire people that are kind of like, you know, they don't really know what they're doing, they're constantly, you know, they're not very motivated, they're not very passionate with their job. Because it's very hard, in my opinion, to work with these people. Yeah, it's hard to motivate them. It's hard to uh, help them endure everything that comes with yeah. uh... The, the turmoil and turbulence of uh, working in such environments. One hiring tip I give to everyone who's listening is that uh, I took that from Mike Gamson. He was VP Sales for LinkedIn. And his methodology that kind of trickled into LinkedIn is that he looked for two things when hiring. So he looked uh, for cultural fit, mm. meaning a person that looks at the values of this company and they resonate. He doesn't look at them and say, Ooh, what is this? Speaking of Revolut, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. If you're into that type of uh, aggressive, competitive growth at all costs mentality and you understand what you stand to gain from participating, fine. If not, don't try to change a company. Choose a different one. So that's one, cultural fit. Mm-hmm. And the other is a track record of excellence. So sometimes you have to hire uh, people who haven't done that role before, either because you're going like crazy or because you can't afford them or because they're the only one who's willing to work for you. Mm-hmm. So... If you have to uh, uh, hire people and you can't base it on their professional record in that specific industry, try and base it on a track record of excellence. What have they done well in the past? It could be a swimmer, a trumpet player, or, or a private tutor. Uh, but knowing what excellent looks like is a huge motivator, and it helps you tap into that secret fuel, that secret purpose-driven energy that makes some companies amazing to work for and some companies amazing gifts to our world. Like you can, every day can be a new day and you can start being excellent, right? 
just because you didn't have been in in the past doesn't mean you can't do it in the future. You know, like you can start every day new. Like if you wanna, if you never worked in, I don't know, being an artist, or if you never had an excellent track record, but then you put in the hours and you, you spend time at home to practice and you get feedback from other people. I think if you stick to it, you probably will be good at some point. Well, um, you've had a remarkable, remarkable career, and the majority of it is still ahead. I am so, so looking forward to seeing what you and Kiko are up to in the next few years. If our listeners and viewers want to reach out to you and ask for advice, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, best thing is LinkedIn. Best thing is LinkedIn. And if they want to learn more about Kiko and how they can get involved? Uh, it's Kiko.homes. Kiko.homes. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.